This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Now and Not Yet. Pressing in when you're waiting, wanting, and restless for more. Written and narrated by best-selling author Ruth Cho Simons and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Many of us uh, sort of first started to, to notice the problems that I've just, I'm describing here in terms of in political spaces and in terms of relationships and that sense of like, are we looking at the same reality? Like, does, does this person, are they getting the inputs I'm getting? Like just that, that feeling of incomprehension um, that they have such a different idea from you about not even, you know, like a policy solution, but like the basic facts of the situation. We all know that something feels deeply wrong, not only out there on the internet, but also in our brains. We don't think as well, our attention has slipped. What's going on? And why can't we seem to gather around the Thanksgiving dinner table with people with different beliefs and have thick communities? Well, I am joined today by my husband, Bryce Hales, and we chat with Bonnie Christian. She's the author of Untrustworthy, The Knowledge Crisis, Breaking Our Brains, Polluting Our Politics, and Corrupting Christian Community, as well as a book called A Flexible Faith. She's a journalist and writes opinion pieces on foreign policy, religion, electoral politics, and more. She has a column at Christianity Today called The Lesser Kingdom, and she's a fellow at Defense Priorities, a foreign policy think tank. Her work has been published in outlets like the New York Times, The Week, USA Today, CNN, Politico, Reason, and The Daily Beast. She's a graduate of Bethel Seminary and lives in Pittsburgh with her husband and twin sons. Listen in to this conversation. I promise you'll find hope for the church, for family, and for speaking across the aisles. Listen in. Welcome to the Finding Holy Podcast. I'm your host, Ashley Hales, author of A Spacious Life. I love big ideas, but ideas have to move beyond an ivory tower to find their application in the midst of our work and our laundry routines. Here on the Finding Holy Podcast, expect conversations about how to live faithfully in a post-Christian world, but without the vitriol, posturing, or shouting across the aisles. All right. It is fun. I am joined by Bryce Hales, and we today are chatting with Bonnie Christian. She's the author of Untrustworthy, The Knowledge Crisis, Breaking Our Brains, Polluting Our Politics, and Corrupting Christian Community. She's also a columnist at Christianity Today and has written widely on topics of disinformation as well as foreign policy and a host of other things. So I'm so excited to welcome Bonnie to the podcast. Thanks for being here. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Yes. So I loved your book. I thought it was so helpful, so well-researched, and there's so much for us to really dig into today. So to kind of frame our conversation, tell us about what you talk about as this knowledge crisis, and how did you start researching it? And you talk about it, too, as an, an epistemic crisis. Can you unpack that for us for a little bit? Yeah, for sure. So I would say that the the knowledge crisis is sort of that, for many of us, probably unfortunately familiar sense of 
uncertainty and confusion and just unease that you feel when you're trying to engage in our like media and information environment, especially online and on social media, but not just there. And sort of the, the question that I think a lot of us are, are like wondering in the back of our minds a lot about like what what is trustworthy here? What is knowable? Like, how can I be certain that what I'm reading is true or, or which voices are reliable and worth listening to? And so it's really, I argue, a, a matter of epistemology. And, and that's where that term epistemic crisis comes from. And epistemology is a term from, it's a, a branch of philosophy. And it's concerned with, with the study of knowledge, like what, what is knowledge? What can we really know? How can we communicate knowledge? These kinds of questions. And often in academic philosophy, it takes like a very obscure and esoteric form. Like it's research that's maybe not going to be super helpful to the average person and not something that most people ever need to think about, right? Um, but what I'm arguing is that when you live in an information environment that is as chaotic and as overwhelming as ours, you sort of have to start thinking about epistemology at a really practical level and thinking about how you're consuming and evaluating and engaging and spreading knowledge. Uh, and so under other circumstances, we wouldn't have to think about this. But if we're going to live the way that we do live and, and consume media the way that we do, we have to start thinking about it. Um, and so I sort of got on this subject after just noticing like a lot of related and repeated themes in my like day-to-day -day journalism work, I was, you know, coming back to a lot of similar topics, sort of like circling the topic of epistemology proper. And finally, it sort of clicked to me of like, oh, these are quite related and this is what ties them together. And maybe I should write about it in a format that will be of interest for more than like three days. <laughs> right. <laughs> Uh, so, Bonnie, you describe several factors in your book that contribute to this epistemic crisis. And you talk about things like the acceleration of the news cycle, social media, this kind of mob mentality, um, siloing off emotions and, and yet venting them online. Um, but, but you're talking about like a, a system that uh, is in operation here. And I wonder, it seems to me like sometimes that idea of systemic problems is kind of hard for people to grasp. I, I wonder, are there like metaphors or analogies that you've thought of that can maybe help, like help us understand what does it mean that these are systemic issues? Yeah. I don't know about metaphors. I think one way that's easy for people to understand is to think about social media and the way that many of us in recent years have started to realize like something is wrong here. You know, like you think back to, the, the that optimism about social media back in the early 2000s, especially around like the 2008 election when the Obama campaign was using it in ways that nobody had done before. And I was like, oh, this is going to be so great. We're going to be so connected. We're going to be so well informed. We're going to be such good citizens. Everybody was so pumped about it. And then it just all turned so sour so quickly. And none of those hopes were fulfilled, it seems like. And I think a lot of people are realizing that and realizing that it's a problem even if their own personal behavior on social media isn't usually very problematic, right? Like you might not be on social media, like saying horrible things to people and spreading lies. Um, but just the fact of being there means you're involved in that. And unfortunately, if you like follow discussion around that in the way that I do, 
there just there just are not a lot of great ideas for how do we fix that at a large scale. Like people have all these ideas about how we should regulate it, but when you drill down into the details of like, well, okay, what would those regulations be? How would you fix it? It all gets very thin and not not very convincing in my experience. Um, it, it frequently the people who are calling for regulation most loudly are people who don't really understand how like anything technological works. <laughs> and I think you know social media is not the whole of the problem that I'm talking about. Um, but that sense of like it is a it is a big system with big problems. It's very it's a lot of things. It's you're part of it, but it's not just you. And there's not really any one big top down fix that is going to come in and solve it all. Um, and that what is true of social media, that is, I think, also true of this broader knowledge crisis to which social media is just one contributing factor. I, I remember, I mean, it was when I was in high school when like America Online was first becoming a thing. And I remember getting the, like a CD-ROM. You had to get like to get on the internet, you had to get something in the mail first. In high school, I used to cycle through those because my mom wouldn't get an internet connection. Yeah, yeah, so I would like, like do one and then call and cancel and then I'd go get another one and start it again. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. The thing I remember is that um, the metaphor that was always used was um, it's going to, there's going to be this global village mm-hmm. and it, it was like, everybody's going to, and now it's, it's become more like a global cage match. It seems like. Yeah. It's so interesting to think back. Like, my recollection of those times was that the fear was very much about our physical safety, like that you were going to get abducted. And so you shouldn't put your real name on the internet because they were going to come like bodily carry you away after a catfishing you in a chat room or something. And, you know, not that that has never happened, but that is really not the primary issue that, you know, this whole thing presents us to right now. It is much more about like taking our our time and our attention spans and, and the way our brains work, not taking our physical bodies anywhere. You know, as we think about that reality um, and, you know, as we realize that there is no top-down change and there is no, you know, quick fix to this sort of thing, um, you know, how do we as Christians begin to move forward? Um, What would you even say to might be the largest challenge for us as a society, given these realities? Um, You know, is it our inability to think well? Is it the inability to love well? Is it, you know, a discipleship challenge? Where do you see um, all of this constellation of issues that you point out in your book leading? Um, yes, yes to, to all. <laughs> all <laughs> no, I mean, I, I think that there are a lot of effects. I think many of us uh, sort of first started to, to notice the problems that I've just, I'm describing here in terms of in political spaces and in terms of relationships with family members where, you know, like a few years back, there was that big spate of like how to shut down your racist uncle at Thanksgiving articles that everybody was writing. Um, I think those those sorts of uh, like interpersonal fights and, and very political fights are, are where a lot of people first started noticing this. And, and especially where you're like talking to someone and that sense of like, are we looking at the same reality? Like, does is this person, are they getting the inputs I'm getting? Like just that, that feeling of incomprehension um, that they have such a different idea from you about not even, you know, like a policy solution, but like the basic facts of the situation. But I think it's, we're increasingly seeing that it is very much a, a discipleship and a, a congregational life issue where, um, you know, a lot of pastors, I think, are noticing these issues in their churches now, and a lot of them, I think, have been 
a little bit caught by surprise, you know, especially if you were in seminary 10, 20, 30 years ago, you weren't talking about this stuff there and understandably. Um, and something that I encountered pastors saying over and over again in the past few years, both like in interviews I did while, while researching this book and just sort of like out in the wild, unprompted on social media, and like weirdly verbatim phrasing was, is something to the effect of, you know, I get my congregants an hour or two a week and Fox or CNN or Instagram or Twitter or what have you gets them 15, 20, 30 hours. And I just can't compete with that. Um, and so I think it, it has at this point very clearly become a discipleship problem and something that it, there's not a lot of like precedent, you know, like television, I guess, is sort of a, a more longstanding problem in that space. But it's, you know, you couldn't lug your television around in your hand the way that we can now. It's, it's on a different scale. Bonnie, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about just um, sort of the, um, we, we like to think that epistemology and how we know something is sort of like a cold, rational process. Like, I believe this because it's true. And I'm assuming it, as soon as you dig into that, it, it falls apart completely. So I wonder, it seems like trust is a big part of, of what you're describing there, right? Like, um, you know, I believe this is true because Tucker, Tucker Carlson said it. And, and I trust him. Um, and how does that play into this whole dynamic? Yeah, I, I think we like to think of ourselves as very rational beings who are, you know, deciding on the on the facts. And uh, there's that that popular slogan on the right now, facts don't care about your feelings. I think people on both sides think of themselves as operating in that mode. But the reality is that we, by and large, don't operate that way. And there are actually, I think, and I, you know, I say this as someone who, who makes arguments for a living, but I think there are relatively few cases where just the bare, uh, the bare argument is changing anyone's mind. Like that's for the most part, not how people work. Uh, and so uh, in, the, in the book, I borrow an analogy from a writer named Jonathan Haidt, who many of your readers are probably familiar with. Um, it's this analogy of, of the, the rider and the elephant. And his idea is that all of us are like a, a rider and an elephant, and the um, the elephant is sort of, or excuse me, the rider is like our logical thinking, conscious minds, and the the elephant is everything else. It's like your emotions, it's your inclinations, your instincts. It's does your stomach hurt after the last meal you ate? Like all these sorts of uh, semi-conscious and subconscious factors that really do affect how we how we decide we know something or not. Um, and what he argues is that we tend to think about if we notice the separation at all, we think, well, I'm, I'm really the writer and the elephant can sort of be suppressed and controlled. But the point of the analogy is like the elephant is really big and, and actually both of them are equally you. And if the elephant doesn't want to go somewhere, it doesn't matter what the writer thinks, like you're not going. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I think epistemology in the way it, it works in academic spaces does tend to be like, you know, hyperlogical and they do like these little, I want to call it like a word problem almost like from a math textbook where it's like a little scenario and then, okay, do you know something in this scenario? Um, but the way that it works in, in practice, the way that we're like acquiring knowledge and, and transmitting knowledge and deciding what's knowable is much more like integrated and organic than that. And it's, even if we want it to be really rational, it, it frequently isn't. 
Yeah. And so, I mean, just maybe to kind of then connect the dots, it, it seems like the discipleship issue is, is then related to who do you, who do you trust? Right. And, and I, I think, yeah. Who do you trust? Who, who do you give authority in your life? Who are you willing to spend your time on these kinds of questions? Yeah. And to what extent is, is that being shaped by like your interaction with the church, the Bible, Jesus, <laughs> or social media, yeah, mainstream media, et cetera. Yeah. Help us also, you know, I, I, it occurs to me as we're talking, um, you know, we've taken several steps back from actually, you know, the actual news cycle. Um, for those who are kind of embroiled and embedded in this sort of thing, who haven't maybe connected the dots that your book does, how do we begin to even have conversations about that, you know, uh, to wake up to the realities in which we we have been formed and are being formed, you know, the questions and patterns that you've noticed. What about those who haven't? Um, and where do we even begin? I, I really enjoyed the very beginning of your book. You talk about um, a guy, you say, let's call him Jim, who has changed his life, you know, instead of buying a house because of his fears and, you know, the economy is going to collapse because so-and-so is in power. He buy he doesn't buy a house, right? He buys a camper, right? Because um, it has so shaped his reality that it shapes his on the ground experience as well. And so, and you talk about, you can't actually argue with the gyms. Um, so, so what might we do? Those of us who have appreciated your book, who are recognizing some of these epistemic problems, what does that look like on the ground with people who maybe aren't there? That's the hardest question, I think. Um, and I, as I wrote at the end, like, you know, it would have been great if coming to the end of this writing process, I could have been like, you know, and here are the things that you do and that will fix your aunt and she'll stop posting on Facebook. Um, <laughs> in practice, uh, yeah, it doesn't work. I think um, not arguing is, unfortunately, as, as hard as this is for me and for many people, really key. Uh, it's just very, very unlikely that you're going to argue someone out of that sort of mindset and the way that they've like reframed their, their whole world around, um, what, what you think and, and what probably are falsehoods. Uh, I think there's a, there's a few things though that you can do. One is it's in the, um, David French who wrote my forward always makes this point. It's, it's the question of like, how much time are you spending with them? Because if you're seeing this person for a uh, half an hour a week, um, it doesn't matter what you say. It's not going to make a difference in their life. And not only is spending time with them important because it, it makes them more willing to listen to you if eventually you know, and we're talking on a time scale maybe of years, if eventually the opportunity does arise to actually discuss sort of like the, the meat of the issue, like like the ways in which they are um, confused or misguided, if you're not spending that time with them, it, it won't work. And also every, every minute that you guys are doing normal things, that you're having a meal together or, or going on a walk together or what have you, talking about kids or dogs or jobs, those are not minutes that they're spending like, taking in more media and, and encourage, like, and it's, and it's, I mean, it's going to be the same for you too. Like it's, it's good to be spending those times, um, doing normal human things, not, uh, not furthering your like malformed, uh, habits of attention. Uh, another thing that I would say is there's this story about, uh, Ben Franklin. Uh, and the story is that he, 
there was an, a guy in the legislature in Pennsylvania. This is a true story. It's like, it's the, not one of the many apocryphal Ben Franklin stories. Um, <laughs> there's a guy in the Pennsylvania legislature who was a new, new lawmaker, didn't, took a dislike to Franklin and Franklin was like, I, I don't want this to be the situation because it seems like he's going to be a powerful guy. And so what he did was he went to this guy and said like, hey, I heard you have this book that I really want to read. Can I borrow it, please? And it seems like it's a really great book and I'm so impressed that you have it. And so the guy lends him the book and he reads it and returns it. And then the next time they see each other and for the rest of their lives, this guy's like his friend, there's buddy, buddy. Um, and so psychologists call this the Ben Franklin effect. And basically the idea is that we tend to think if you help someone, then they're like indebted to you and they'll be open to hearing from you and they'll like you. But in reality, the way our brains work is kind of the other way around that if they help you, then they become invested in you and your well-being and they want to maintain that relationship. And so um, something that is maybe a little bit tricky and risky to do, but if you think someone you know and love is under sway of knowledge crisis, of knowledge crisis, ask them to help you with your own habits of media consumption. And, you know, it can't just be a strategy. Like you have to be sincere in and really willing to hear what they have to say. Um, and maybe they will correctly, you know, point something out that could be changed in your life. Um, but not only does that foster that relationship and encourage that investment, but it, it gives you an opportunity to bring up these topics in a way that's not confrontational and argumentative because it's not you going after them. Um, and the last thing I would say on this point is just, you kind of have to accept what I had to accept, like in, in writing about this, which is that you're not necessarily going to be the one who sees this through. And, you know, the relationship may end, you might move, you, one of you might die, like it, things, you might not be the one who, who sort of fixes it for them. And that's, you know, it, it, it reminded me thinking through that about that, that verse of, um, you know, one, one plants and another waters, but God brings the harvest. And I think we want to, with this scenario, we really want to be bringing the harvest, but probably in most cases, maybe you'll luck out. Maybe sometimes you will be the one, but probably not. This episode is brought to you in part by Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries, which prepares Christian women for leadership. At Bow, we believe that every woman is a leader because she influences someone. So, whom do you influence? Do you mentor a woman, serve in the workplace, or do you lead a small group, teach the Bible, or even lead an entire ministry? No matter who or how many you influence, our free online resources will help equip you. Our videos, podcast episodes, and articles from experienced women leaders will encourage you and perfect your leadership skills. They offer wisdom for dealing with ministry pitfalls, current biblical issues, health for your own soul, and insights for shepherding others well. In addition, BOW offers Bible studies designed to connect women of multiple generations. They provide a challenge to both women new to the Bible and those wanting to dig deeper. Be our guest and browse all of our free resources and low-cost Bible studies at beyondordinarywomen.org. I mean, that, that last thing you said sort of relates to, um, you know, Edward Friedman's concept of being a non-anxious presence. Mark Sayers has written a book about that recently, too. 
um, not letting the other person's anxieties kind of pull us off course from and, and jumping into the craziness and just, okay, like I, I still love you. I can still maintain a relationship with you. Um, I think that Ben Franklin effect, I, I hadn't heard that before, but that's, that's fascinating. You're saying that, that rather than sort of taking the position of let me help you taking the position of humility, almost of, can you help me with this problem tends to have a, a greater long-term effect in the, in the, the kind of health or the relationship. Yeah. And I, you know, I mean, like I said, I think it's a little bit risky, right? Because you have to, to actually be willing to maybe do some of the things they say, or, or maybe if it's some sort of like, I don't know, like, let me check in with you about how many hours a week I'm spending on whatever my social media platform of choice is, then you got to tell them how many, how many hours did you spend? Um, so yeah, it's a, I think, uh, a hard strategy to commit to. And, and again, can't just be a strategy, but something that could, could help in some scenarios. Bonnie, I wonder if you have thoughts for sort of people on the other side of the equation. I'm a pastor. I, I think a lot of our audience is probably people in leadership roles in ministry contexts. And uh, often it's people who are, you know, saying what you, what you said earlier. We get our people a couple hours a week. There's, what, 196 hours, I think, in the week. Um, we get one or two of those maybe. Um, and, and yet sometimes it's... Um, you know, it's, we're seeing things that people in our churches are posting online. Um, and you're just kind of going, no, please <laughs> don't. Um, I mean, what, what advice would you have for people who are in kind of leadership roles and in ministry contexts? Uh, better you than me. <laughs> no, it, it's, it's not a, it's not a position that I envy any, under any circumstances, but especially, in dealing with this sort of thing. I think that those questions of habit and attention and also authority are, are really key right now. So on the habit and attention front, you know, what can you do just like in an interpersonal relationship, what can you do to, to change the number of those hours? Um, you know, particularly right now when many people may still have some, some fresh eagerness to sort of get back into community life after like a lot of pandemic closures, depending on where you live, um, depending on how fresh that is, you know, the, the more time we are spending together doing even not explicitly churchy things like doing a potluck, doing a, um, I don't know, a game night, whatever that is not, that is time that is forming us differently than the time that we're spending, you know, so absorbed in these media spaces. And I think it's hard to overstate, how important and how potentially feasible that is, because again, it doesn't come off as a, as a direct like confrontation. I'm going to fix your politics. It's like, Hey, let's hang out. Um, and you know, talk about other stuff on the authority thing. That's something that I barely scratched the surface on in this book. And, and something that I think someone else <laughs> needs to, who's not me, um, more, more expertise in the subject needs to write about. But basically, you know, if you are, if you do have people who are spending so much more time with other voices, Tucker Carlson, Rachel Maddow, whoever, um, and functionally making those people, the, putting them in that position of greater authority than the pastor, um, if the, the pastor is unable to say like, hey, I've observed you eight hours a day on Facebook, I think you need to 
maybe suspend your account for a little bit and then have the, the person actually do that. And I think there's very few churches in America right now where if your pastor came to you and said, hey, I need, think you need to shut down your Facebook account, the person would actually do it. Um, and there's a lot of reasons why people are really wary of like abuses of pastoral authority, a lot of good reasons and like totally get that context. Um, so maybe it doesn't work from like a, a top down, the pastor is the one making these suggestions things. But if you could figure out a way to democratize that kind of authority so that different congregants are, are speaking that kind of accountability into each other's lives um, in a way that might feel uh, a little more comfortable and, and not sort of raise those fears about um, misuse of pastoral power. Uh, I think something like that could help. Um, like I have an iPhone and iPhones, if you don't know, will give you that, that account of how much hours you've spent on everything each day. And it's appalling. My um, problem with that is that I don't know if there's a way to change this. It shows that to me at like nine 30 on Sunday morning, which <laughs> is like, I can't look at this right now. iPhone. Like I am about to stand or now I am preaching at 9 30 in the morning and so sure. i'm the just like timing. i've got to skip this and so i never actually <laughs> see what it says yeah i mean i i hate to go and look at it um it's always depressing uh even on the weeks i think i've done a really good job but you know like like even if we're just with a fellow congregant being willing to like show each other that and say what did your week look like what did your time use look like um I think that could be something useful. How do we get back to a sense of communal identity? I think, you know, a lot of what's really fascinating about this knowledge crisis is, you know, this sort of tribalism that's resulted. Um, so we feel like we're a part of something, um, you know, us versus them. And yet our local communities are kind of atrophied, um, not just because of the COVID-19 pandemic, but there's a sense in which we feel like we're part of something. Um, and I wrote recently on my Substack about this, like this kind of fake vulnerability, you know, that we participate in on social media, let's say. So we feel like we're doing something or even, you know, activism online. We feel like we're doing something, but we're actually just sitting in our house. We're not actually contributing to solving a problem. So how do we get back from, how do we begin to solve some of this problem in community? Uh, you know, you spoke a little bit about maybe accountability with our social media feeds with someone, but how do we begin to move away from this tribalism, this allure of fake community and into actual real community? Yeah, it's a tricky thing. I just saw a question on um, Twitter, I think, and I don't remember who was that posted it, but it was something to the effect of thinking about Christians who share your politics or Christians with different politics from you versus people with the same politics as you who are not fellow Christians, who do you think like is closer to you? Who would you get along with better? And I think for a lot of us, the answer now would be the people with the similar politics, but not the same faith. And that seems like a very damning indictment of where we are. Um, I don't know that there's a, a, a single way to fix that. I mean, a, it's it's such a it's a part of such like a, a larger problem of of everything is very much unmoored and all of our relationships are, are very voluntary and chosen and you know if you don't like this church you just bounce to another one um it's not like the old parish model where you just sort of like there was the one church because we did the reformation 
that sort of change things a little bit. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, there's there's not a, a single thing beyond, I think, to, to sound like a broken record, just like it, it takes time together and proximity and um, like interactions that can happen spontaneously to, to build that sort of community identity and to, to start to think about yourself as a part of um, the local community, the local congregation, rather than whatever communities you're in online that are probably spanning large geographic areas and that are, you know, in many cases bound by animosity towards people outside that group more than actual like affection and, and mutual care for people within it. I think that's exactly true. It's just like the long, slow, very ordinary means of, of becoming a people. What gives you hope? I think, you know, as, as we move forward. Well, I guess I would say two things. One is that when I, you know, go around like describing what this book is about, um, I don't have to like convince people that there's a problem here. I think people are recognizing this uh, and maybe don't have quite the words for it, but are recognizing that we have gotten ourselves in trouble here in a way that we maybe didn't super recognize even five years ago. Um, I, I think it wasn't really until, I don't know, maybe like 2016, 2017, that people started thinking something, we, something is off here. What is it? Um, and we're finally getting to a point where not only are, are a lot of people noticing what's wrong, but people, even in very different political and, and faith contexts, are sort of converging on like what that problem is. Solutions, different question, but acknowledging and agreeing on the problem. Um, the other thing that I would point to is that you know, thinking about people our age, people who are adults now, um, who are recognizing this problem, I think for us, and this is going to start off a little gloomy, but I think for us, this is probably going to be something we have to like think about for the rest of our lives. Unless you go like full Amish, as long as you're, as long as you're continuing to engage in the media environment, the information environment that we have. And I think most of us are going to continue doing that. Um, I think our, our brains are just going to be a little messed up and it's going to be have to, something that we have to constantly pay attention to. Like, how am I, how am I doing with this? Am I, Am I doing it um, fairly? Am I doing it uh, in a way that is bearing good fruit? But I think that we, that one positive effect of that is that we're going into like raising children with an understanding of what the actual dangers of all this are in a way that our parents didn't and couldn't have because they simply didn't know what it would be like. Um, but we know what it will be like. And that means I think that we are much better equipped to think through how should our children first like begin entering this environment and how can we equip them to maybe not mess up their brains as we did ours. And and there's a is there a good way to explain that to like a fifteen year old that wants Snapchat or <laughs> uh, my kids are only three, so let me get back to you in a few years. Um, no, I mean, like, so right now when I have such little kids, our our main thought is just, you know, prohibition and they don't know what they're missing. Um, like, they have yet to see a movie. We have extremely strict screen time rules um, because it's, I mean, it's wild 
little kids, how, how rapidly they're able to pick it up and, and become fixated on it, become obsessed. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm not <laughs> super looking forward to those forthcoming battles, but I think um, Andy Crouch's book, which I'm sure you're familiar with, the, the TechWise family, um, he has good recommendations in there and, and ones that we will probably try to to follow. I want to say his kids like don't see a movie or something until they're 10, which is a little more hardcore than even I'm willing to go. But I think it's, uh, it's one of those things where like, I don't know, we have an idea that, or a lot of schools have an idea that like we need to give all the kids iPads, they need to learn how to use this technology. And my thought is, no, you don't need to spend a second of educational time teaching a kid how to use an iPad. Your children will develop incredible facility with technology, no matter how late you introduce it. And so like, there's no, there's no rush. They're not, certainly when they get into like teen years and high school, there's like that social question of if all your friends have it. Um, and at that point, I think it raises the issue of some of the stuff we were already talking about, like it, of community life together. Um, is it possible for them to have friends whose parents are thinking along the same lines so that all their friends don't have it. Man, I'm tempted to get on my soapbox about the, the schools giving our kids iPads. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. It's so frustrating. Let's just move past that. <laughs> <laughs> let's just, let's just transition though to laundry. <laughs> more, a more ancient technology. So yeah. Bonnie, tell us, what is your laundry routine, you know, as we try to connect the dots between the things that we do and use um, and our everyday lives? What does that look like for you? Um, well, we generate, I would say, half a load to a load of laundry a day between the kids and uh, I have guinea pigs and they have washable fleece bedding. And then also uh, for the last few years, we have like one to 200 flannel rags that we use instead of paper towels. And so those add up too. Um, so I would, I don't know, I let it pile up for maybe, I probably do laundry two or three times a week in bigger batches, like two or three loads each time, and then try to cycle it in and out over the course of the day. And then after the kids are in bed, we'll fold it, uh, usually like while watching television and figure that's, um, you know, and I'm, I'm combining a product, productive thing with, <laughs> with the frivolous activity. Yes. Yes. Oh, well, thank you so much for your good work and your good thinking um, on so many questions that are plaguing our society and our churches today. We appreciate your time and hope that yeah, you'll get a really wide readership for Untrustworthy. Thanks. Thank you. I'm hoping that also. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Bonnie Christian, that it put some words and frameworks around everything we're experiencing around this epistemic crisis that she speaks about so helpfully in her book, Untrustworthy. I hope you will grab a copy at the link in the show notes and support good journalism as well about reading widely. I also encourage you as you move into your week, to think about how we might bring some of these things from our conversation into a small step that you can take. And I love how Bonnie encouraged us to simply even begin to pay attention to how we spend our time 
to pay attention to our attention keeping. And so I want to encourage you to make it a priority to look at that iPhone and figure out how much time you're actually spending on social media, how much you're spending on news outlets, and make that known to someone else. Hold each other accountable and begin to ask for help from someone who thinks differently than you. Over time, these things can actually help re-knit our common community for the common good. Thanks for being here, friends. It's so enjoyable to host these conversations. I would love it if you would take a second to subscribe if you don't already. And if you do, leave a review or rating on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Remember, big things matter, but so does your laundry. 